Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. Regular listeners will know that finding common ground on political divides is a key topic for us and for the whole reason for doing this podcast. So we are delighted and excited to be joined by Luke Trill, who does that as his day job. Welcome, Luke. Please introduce yourself for our listeners. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I'm Luke Trill. I'm the UK Director of More in Common. Fantastic. So what is More in Common? Why does it exist? Why was it set up? Please tell us a little bit about it. Of course. Um, so More in Common was established in 2016, uh, following the very tragic murder of Joe Cox. And our, our mission, um, you know, building on you know more in common um, were the words that Joe Cox used in a speech in Parliament when she talked about us having more in common than that which divides us. Our mission is really that. It is to try and identify the areas of common ground that we have and also to try and disrupt those forces which divide us. And we know that, you know, in the aftermath of things like the Brexit uh, vote here in the UK or the election of Donald Trump uh, in the US and then the sort of, I guess, ongoing uh, Brexit wars that we saw sort of between 2016 and 2019, particularly, there was this sense that we're kind of you know, irreparably divided when actually, you know, uh, that might be the case um, at the elite level and, you know, the way that Twitter or the broadsheets uh, work. But certainly when you speak to people, it's not how they view the world. And I guess, you know, our mission since we were established, as I say, is finding those areas of common ground, uh, looking at how you disrupt forces of division. And one of the key ways that we do that is to try and, I guess, lift the veil a little bit between public opinion and what different groups within the public uh, think about some of the big challenges of our day uh, and what you might call elite opinion. But and I don't use that in a pejorative way. I sort of mean, you know, sort of commentators, civil society, politicians, businesses often don't actually have a good handle on what the public think about things like climate change or migration. And our job is to slightly try and demystify some of that. So can we get into um, things in the UK then? Because I know you've done a lot of interesting work uh, on opinion in the UK. So the, the first thing to ask is how divided is the UK in any way we can judge that? Uh, it's a really, it's a really uh, good uh, question. Um, there's no doubt that, um, you know, at this point in time, the public certainly feel we're more divided than uh, we have been um, in the past. But I think... A lot of that is due to the way that, you know, discussions or what you might call rows about major issues are covered in the media or in Parliament. When you actually dig into it, um, there's actually a lot of common ground and it tends to be what we see projected on, as I say, social media or in other areas are the most extreme versions 
of uh, opinions. We work in uh, the US um, as well as uh, the UK and France, Germany and Poland um, as well. Uh, and what's so interesting is that, you know, we we worry um, rightly about polarisation here, otherwise more in common UK wouldn't exist. But you contrast us with somewhere like the US where on most issues you have kind of two very divided camps. In the UK, um, that, that's not the case. Um, firstly, um, we don't have in the UK the same, uh, I use the term, stacked identities, by which I mean, um, you know, if I'm sat in a focus group in the US and someone tells me what they think about, say, gun control, it's usually very easy uh, to then predict what they think about um, the environment, abortion, um, because they tend to adopt a series of worldviews that align. In the UK, we're not like that at all. We, we describe it um, as being a bit more like a kaleidoscope. Um, so people can have a very strong view about one area, but it doesn't necessarily follow. They'll sort of take the party line on another uh, related issue as well. And just to give you one example, I was in a focus group. Um, it was in a red wall uh, constituency, one of those constituencies that the Conservatives won in 2019 from uh, Labour. And there was an elderly gentleman who was very animated about small boats, um, you know, genuinely thought it was one of the biggest issues facing uh, the country uh, and didn't understand why we hadn't got a grip on it. I then switched over um, the topic to ask about footballers taking the knee. Um, and his view on that was, well, of course, footballers should take the knee. They should sort of stand in solidarity with their teammates. That's what you do when you're on a team. So we just don't have that kind of predictable one issue predicts what people think on another. So there's no doubt there are divisions and there is a danger that media, social media and other forces kind of push their divisions down onto the public at large. But it's much less kind of black and white, one side versus the other, than you see in somewhere like the US. Uh, and when you say black and white, um, it, is, is it the case you're just talking about the kind of gap in people disagreeing on the sort of substance of, of an, an issue? Or is it also to do with kind of how one disagrees, the emotive side of things? So when we've spoken to polling people in the past, they've talked about uh, affective polarisation, kind of emotional polarisation. Do you, do you pick up on the manners of disagreement becoming more personal? Or is that is that something, again, that's a bit of a myth? Again, you know, the, the truth is that for most people, that, that just isn't the case. I actually think um, Brexit was was a slight exception with that. You did get a lot more of that kind of emotional response. And, you know, this sense of, oh, God, whatever you do, don't talk about it over the Christmas dinner table. Um, but what's interesting is even that has dropped massively uh, in, sali in both salience, but also in... Um, intensity of feeling about it as a divide you know the number of people ident self-identifying as brexiteers or remainers has dropped uh significantly since then and the interesting thing is we, we often say that most brits are balancers when it comes to issues you know they they sort of believe in the politics of and so on something like immigration what you tend to find is most people are in the sense of yeah we want control we don't particularly um, uh, like the way the system's working at the moment. We certainly don't like small boats, but we also want compassion, which is why, you know, we've taken in this huge wave of refugees from Afghanistan, Ukraine, Hong Kong in the past year. So 
you tend to get that uh, that desire to find balance and nuance, which of course makes for much less interesting copy, but is a better reflection of how people actually feel. And do you have any sort of great insights into potentially why? What is it that is similar and different between, for example, the US, as you said, and the emotional stacked identities, sorry, not emotional, the stacked identities you talked about over there, and the more um, balanced view that you can't predict one identity from something else over here. So I know there's been talk of uh, correlation of political positions with age and education. So can you explain why it is different? Um, yeah, it's a really, uh, it's, it's a good question. I think... There is US kind of, I guess you might call political culture, um, tends to be much more all or nothing uh, in its approach. And I think that bleeds down into kind of the sentiment of the public as a whole. So I think that's I think that's one part of it. I think in the UK in particular, I think it is part of a sort of national identity, this sense of uh muddling through might be the wrong word but this sort of desire that you know we don't have a grand plan for instance as a country you know we don't even have a written constitution that you know it is about um kind of you know approaching issues on their own terms rather than looking at them through some kind of quite you know quite strict um ideological prism whereas in the US, of course, it is much more deliberate. You've got something like a constitution. You've got this very deliberate separation of powers. You've almost got kind of, I guess, conflict built into the system uh, in some ways, which you don't get as much um, in the UK. Um, and, it, you know, even down to ways that we express ourselves. So, you know, something like uh, swearing the oath of allegiance um, in schools is, you know, so it's obviously something that happens in the US and you know, most people do it, but it gives something for very progressive um, uh, forces to kind of rally against in some cases. Again, you don't get that here. In fact, most people would find the idea of kind of you taking an oath of allegiance or doing something like that slightly cringe. So it's just a much less formalized but also less intense environment which leads itself towards more moderation now again you know th there is also um you know there's that old sense that you know america sneezes and we catch a cold there's no doubt there is a desire i would guess particularly on the extremes to try and import um some of that u.s style culture wars um framing and rhetoric into the uk so i think you know we, we can't be complacent we have to guard against um it coming over here so on that on that note then i know that more and Colin have done some work looking at some of the issues that are perhaps most difficult so i'm thinking of gender related issues and issues around history and culture and i'm just interested in what you learned from those those bits of work well, yeah, again, what, what we tend to find is that sense of, you know, where Britons do react, it's a, you know, very often this sense of, oh, you know, that's just a bit much, you're going a bit too far there. Um, but B, you know, and I do, you know, I do genuinely think this is true in all of our focus group conversations about either tricky issues or day-to-day -day politics, people are fair-minded, um, you know, they want to... Um, they want to take people at their word. They want to take people's motives um, at their word. When they see that sense of fair-mindedness either being taken advantage of 
or um, kind of not followed, I guess, that's where you tend to get the stronger reaction. So you look at something, you know, uh, like you know, I sometimes call the history wars, isn't it? This, um, um, you know, how does Britain reckon with its colonial past? And what you take, you know, when we had discussions, um, a lot of discussions with people like this, what you tend to find is the sort of median opinion is, well, you know, um, I think it's important that we learn about all of history. I think it's a good thing that we're talking about um, where some of these buildings or monuments were funded from and how Britain got um so rich and you know can we have a plaque next to a statue explaining that but at the same time you get a bit of a reaction against the idea that you know you tear things down because a you know brits um in particular have uh, a resistance against disorder and that sort of seems disordered um when you do that but also it's seen as an extreme reaction people say no, no we don't want to tear down our history we want to kind of add to it so interestingly despite all of the kind of negative uh, attention it's got from some quarters the national trusts retain and explain policy is pretty much where most of the british public are um on something like that and again it's that attempt to try and find balance on what is uh, a tricky issue on something like taking the knee again you know we had lots of discussions about this most people will say well you know what yeah it's right that we do that particularly it's right that we do it at this moment uh and then when the discussion goes on people will say but does that mean we're doing it forever and does that mean it's going to happen in every match because we're not quite sure about that as well so again, rather than this highly charged pro-taking the knee, anti-taking the knee, you've got this attempt um, to find balance uh, there. Um, and similarly, you know, um, as you all know, you know, the debate around uh, trans rights, gender identity, sex-based rights has, you know, the way it plays out is often uh, very polarised and extreme. But when we've spoken to people, the, the starting point firstly is compassion. It is, you know, the number of times in a focus group I've heard, God, it must be really hard um, if you're born into um, the gender you don't identify with. And how do we go about making that easier? Whilst, you know, on some issues, having quite clear red lines. So sport is one of them. Um, the majority of the public don't think that um, trans women uh, in particular should participate in um, women's only sports. But again, the way that they talk about that will be, God, I know that this must be really rubbish, mustn't it, if you're um, a trans athlete? And I feel bad saying it, uh, but it's just about fairness, isn't it? So again, it's just that sort of totally different way of approaching the issue, which is actually much more trying to find solutions and way forward. You know, you chat to people about and spend... Um, spent far longer than I ever thought I would do talking about changing rooms and um, single sex toilets um, in focus groups. <laughs> Most people's initial reaction is, God, you know what? I hate communal changing rooms um, as, a, as a rule, you know, nothing to do with um, the trans debate. Or, you know, you ask about unisex toilets and people say, I have no issue with trans people using them. It's just that I think men are dirty and disgusting. You know, that's the level at which the public uh engage with this stuff it isn't they don't have these tightly constructed ideological frameworks around these issues as i say they're guided by compassion fair-mindedness and balance and, and when you say it that that makes a lot of lot of common sense um with with these these kinds of issues that we're talking about the way it gets um 
talked about by political pundits, at least, is there's two options. One is you either wage a culture war, or two is you avoid it entirely. Is there a middle ground here? Can we have a kind of a civil national conversation about these things, or are we best just leaving them sort of in the background? Uh, it's a really good question. In fact, you know, I think it's one of the most uh, important questions because you're right, there is that tendency um, to think, do you know what? It's just not worth getting into this. And it's a sort of, you know, I'm going to put my head in the sand territory. I mean, I'll tell you, when we uh, launched our sort of programme of work, of work around gender identity and sex-based rights, the number of people that said to me, oh, my God, why are you doing this? Um, you're just going to get, um, you know, you're just going to get shouted down by both sides of the debate. Actually, I think it's one of the worst things that you can do is that kind of let's just stay out of it. Because what you the because the truth is extremes of both sides of the debate are not going to pull out on, you know, not just on this issue, but on any of the issues. And what it means is you get moderates vacating the field and leaving the debate to those at the extremes. Whereas, you know, a lot of our work, what we think is important in these discussions is how do you strengthen in-group moderates, um, who after all generally represent the vast majority of public opinion, how do you strengthen them and help them feel more able to speak out uh, and to be part of the debate and not to kind of retreat from it? Um, and one of the things that, you know, we've identified is where these debates tend to go better is where particularly kind of politicians, public institutions play a leadership role um, in the debate and help uh, to steward that debate. Um, so, you know, we think about how toxic the trans debate is. If you kind of flip back um, and look at something like gay rights, um, if you look at the way that debate played out and, you know, the advances that were made in gay rights in a relatively short space of, of time, in large part that was due to leadership, not just from politicians, uh, but also from civil society and others who genuinely grappled um, with the issues involved. I was at Stonewall when same-sex marriage was going through, and so much of crafting that legislation was about how do you, you know, how do you balance competing concerns around religious freedom, particularly, you know, um, the Church of England and religious marriage with civil marriage and gay people's desire to to marry and we were able to find a way through that and I think you know a bit of that has been lost um in the current kind of I guess campaigning environment. So when you did the work in these areas did you find there were people that tried to to, to quote you shout you down or is that or was that perception actually overblown? Well I mean I guess it depends what <laughs> what you mean by shouting down were there people who you know again and you know, I know uh, be accused of both sides for doing this, but it did happen to be the case. There were people on um, uh, the sort of trans rights side of the debate who said we should never have done this work because we were debating. It meant we were essentially debating trans people's um, existence and identity. And you know, some people expressed that civilly, some people less civilly. Similarly, on the more gender critical side, there were those who felt you know the report didn't go far enough in acknowledging. Um, particularly you know, sort of gender critical uh, commentators or activists or even ordinary people who'd kind of lost their jobs and been driven out of their jobs, you know, which uh, is, is a reasonable criticism and it was expressed well. And most people, you know, did express it like that. 
again, there were a few at the extremes who were like, you know, you know, you know, use kind of foul language and obscenities and um, on Twitter. But, you know, it was it was the minority. And, you know, ultimately, I think the impact of doing that work and trying to shed some light on actually how do the public approach it far outweighs, um, you know, a couple of noisy actors on either side of the debate. And just to pick up your earlier point, I think we're very four moderates um, uh, speaking out in, in terms of this podcast. Um, the other side of the coin, I think, is when you often have conversations that people are sort of despairing about the state of politics. Um, to the other side of the coin from culture wars tends to be democracy. Um, so tell us about your work on democracy and how healthy is it in the UK now? It's, uh, again, a, a really good question. I mean, what, what we've our sort of conclusion on the state of democracy in the UK is that uh, the fundamentals are strong, you know, commitment to the democratic system uh, remains strong, but there is a lot of deep unhappiness with the way that democracy is operating in practice. And this sense that, you know, actually, A, the system as it operates is... I mean, we, we have a regular poll question where we ask people whether the system works for everyone or whether people feel it's rigged to serve, um, you know, the, the few at the top or uh, a narrow band of people. And that figure, the number of people saying they think the system is rigged towards the few has risen significantly, particularly actually kind of post pandemic um, and when all of the news about party gate um, emerge. And, and I think when it comes to democracy, you know, one of the things that we're always clear to say is that not all disengagement is a bad thing, um, that some people are disengaged simply because they want their politicians to do a good job. And this just isn't what they want to think about. You know, there's a whole group of people that for whom their idea of attending a citizens assembly on a Saturday afternoon is their idea of hell. Right. And we don't need to be forcing them to do it. I think that kind of no time or no interest disengagement is actually okay. The more worrying group um, that you have is this group we call them no point disengage. Uh, well, they they have no point disengagement. They think I'm not going to get involved in the system because there's no point in trying to do it because a I won't make a difference. B I won't be listened to, and C the political class are all in it uh, for themselves. And that's dangerous. A not just in of itself that they're disillusioned with democracy, but more importantly, actually, because it creates the space for particularly populist forces to feed off um, that resentment. You know, it creates an opening for someone to come in and be like, oh, you know, I'm not like all of this lot. Um, I'm going to shake things up, um, uh, you know, uh, a la uh, Donald Trump um, style, um, you know, and feeding off, you know, some of those grievances are very legitimate. Um uh, others are not. And so I think that's where um, that's where the real risk is in our system. And I think one of the great sadnesses that I have is that actually when you spoke to people after Boris was elected, we actually got quite a lot of enthusiasm, particularly from those groups um, in uh, the Red Wall. We've done a segmentation of the British public and there's a group called uh, we call them loyal nationals um, and they're sort of pretty much like a typical red wall voter um, in many ways quite socially conservative and but um, economically more statist um, and we do focus groups with that that group who would say you know my community has an investment for years 
Boris is going to change that. He speaks like uh, one of us, um, even though, of course, we know from his background, he's not, you know, he's going to change things. There's real excitement. And it's really depressing, actually, sort of three, four years on, we go back to those same places and people are like, well, nothing's happened. It was a false promise. We, you know, we haven't seen this um, levelling up. And I think things like that, that sense of broken promises, both in terms of delivery of levelling up, but also, um, you know, I think, you know, unfortunately with Boris's conduct personally during Partygate really left a lot of people who really had a lot of faith in him meant they felt very let down. Do you mind if I just pick up on two separate things here? Yeah. One is it's very heartening to to hear that I'm I'm not alone in this, but I've often thought that some level of not necessarily disengagement in politics is a good thing, but more that there is a sense that we elect you to do a job. We don't expect them to be having to constantly micromanage you, yeah. turning up to your assembly. You know, I've put you in this place to do, you know, it's, it's the same at work, you know, when you employ someone, you don't expect to yeah. have to be wiping their bum every five minutes. And it's, it, it seems to me that there's always a, an element of that with politicians that you don't necessarily want them to come begging to you for citizens' assemblies and can we do yeah. this? And blah, blah. You want them to we give you a mandate, go and do your job. So it's heartening. I'd like to hear a little bit more about mm-hmm. that on one hand. And just to pick up with something just that you said towards the end there, <clears throat> which is I was just reading something in one of the papers the last couple of days about how it, it used to be about Workington Man at the last election, and now it's about Stevenage Woman. <laughs> and all of this previous, you know, electoral stuff, it's all, you know, it's all old-fashioned. What you need now is, Pete, uh, you know, Stevenage woman who is um, hardworking, struggling a bit to get by, a bit socially conservative and a little bit sort of left interventionist on the economy. Now, I've heard an awful lot of people tell me that the new centre ground in British politics is people who are a little bit socially conservative, but a little bit interventionist on the economy. Mm. Is this just people sort of trying to reinvent the wheel every time? Because it seems like that group of voters keeps getting rediscovered every couple of weeks, months, years. So can you talk us a little bit more maybe about that and where the sort of centre ground is within the British public, which is two fairly big questions to dump on you there. <laughs> no, it's a really good. So, so to the um, first um, point about um, that kind of just do your job well, politicians disengagement. I mean, I, I think you summarised it um, quite well. You know, again, you know, uh, we we uh, on this podcast are the exception um, in finding politics, you know, particularly uh, interesting. Some people will have particular issues they care about. Um, but, you know, for lots of people, they just want it to go on in the background. Uh, and one of the interesting, I guess, frames that we've discovered as we run up to the next general election is this. Um, there's a, we get a real sense from the public that actually... When it comes to politics, they're just exhausted by it um, at the moment. They, they kind of want it to go away. You know, we've had Brexit. Um, and as soon as that seemed to be coming to an end, we had COVID. Um, we then had Partygate. We then had the war in Ukraine. We then got the cost of living crisis. People feel like they've, you know, politics has been you know, kind of front and centre 
um, for too long. And I actually think the, the prize at the next election, which I'm going to talk a bit more about, is for the one who is for the leader who say, look, I can make all of this stop and go away. And you don't have to worry every time you turn on the six or 10 o'clock news um, anymore. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's a, that's a really important frame. And we shouldn't be trying to force interest or engagement um where it isn't uh there um on um that kind of uh yeah what do you call it? The, the swing group or or the or the center ground of uh british politics uh, i i think you're right i mean i think you know britain as a whole uh leans um you know slightly socially conservative slightly economically uh statist and that was what Boris Johnson tapped into um, in 2019, you know, with that manifesto, which actually, you know, promised much higher investment in the NHS, in police forces uh, and elsewhere, whilst at the same time, you know, there's obviously I mean, Brexit isn't quite social conservatism, but there were, there were a lot of parallels, but also, you know, rhetoric about um, controlling um, migration uh, as well. So, yeah, I think that there, there is a sort of danger that you um you keep reinventing the wheel when actually we know reasonably well where um that swing group is and you know what what's interesting is you know part of the reason we use us we have a segmentation model is that people talk about you know the red wall um as though it was only voters in you know the north uh midlands who swung whereas actually you know if you chat to southern mps what they'll tell you is in their seat they saw the realignment happening within it. So their more working class areas swung towards them and they lost some ground with their more middle class areas. Um, I I guess the flip side, though, is that, and I think this is what's quite interesting about British politics is, you know, that may be where the kind of middle ground is and where that particular swing voter is. I think what's interesting going to the next election is that there are actually a few swing points. So... Another group that we've identified, this group, we call them established liberals. Um, and you might basically sort of think about them as Cameronite Tories. Um, you know, long voted Tory, really like the coalition, um, but largely voted Remain, um, don't like the culture war stuff, didn't like Boris, um, like Rishi a lot more, um, actually, as it happens. And he certainly pulled, in our polling, has pulled back support with that group. But they're a group who weren't particularly a swing group previously. And in places like this blue wall that's been identified, so, you know, that sort of band of seats kind of in the south, um, as a particular southeast and London commuter towns, they're going to be really influential there as well. So, yes, you've got this kind of... In socially conservative, economically left-leaning group, which is a much bigger group. But you've also got this group who are the other way around, who are, as I say, slightly economically to the right, um, but more socially liberal, who are in play um, for the first time in a while. So I think that's quite uh, that's going to be quite an interesting dynamic as well. Well, that sounds like a perfect time to get into some of the sort of election analysis and speculation. So we'll start by, in fact, talking about something that you've just raised, which is about a conservative comeback. So you say that Sunak is more uh, sort of favourably viewed amongst this sort of Cameronite group. So could you tell us, are the Conservatives making a comeback? And maybe it might be quite interesting to set out those kind of segments, groups that you've uh, 
you've touched on. Yeah, of course. Um, so are the Conservatives uh, making a comeback? Um, I think uh, it's certainly uh, premature to say uh, comeback. Um, what I would say is that they have they've moved on from the Nadir, um, but there would still be a long way for the Conservatives to go with the electorate as a whole before you get into specific groups to convince them to give them another four or five years you do get this real sense that after you know again particularly after party but not just that you know the sort of cost of living crisis with the nhs um of course with what happened last year with uh the mini budget um that actually it's it's sort of time for change um and you see that in the polls they have they have narrowed and there is no doubt that um rishi sunak uh you know his sense of kind of calm competence um appeals to people but we're talking in narrowing you know at the moment of two or three points um putting the labor lead somewhere around um 18 you know 18% ish on average which is still landslide territory um, now, I'm not saying that that um, can't change uh, in the run up to the next election. If the economy significantly improves, um, then you could see that turning. You know, you do get a lot of grumbles uh, in focus groups, uh, again, across the electorate about the fact that people don't really know what Keir Starmer stands for. And um they don't you know the, the, you'll often hear doesn't he just oppose everything now I think that's a challenge that lots of oppositions face but it definitely comes through so it's not that Keir is unassailable but you know if you were betting now um yeah but my tip would certainly be for a Labour majority and why is that well actually if you dig into those um seven segments broadly um, of the population that we've identified broadly. At the last election, there were three of them that voted uh, Labour and four of them that voted Conservative. Uh, and three Labour ones, you've got one is kind of sort of progressive, we call progressive activists. It's um, just what it says on the tin. Um, uh, you know, will definitely vote for Labour. Uh, and then two other groups um, who are particularly likely to vote for Labour as well. We call them civic pragmatists and disengaged battlers you've then got four groups that voted conservative um one is your backbone conservatives so like you know basically your shire tories um and they might grumble about the conservative party some of them might vote for a party like uh reform uk which um maybe we should touch on uh, a bit later but but broadly they're with the party you then got another group with sort of disengaged traditionalists sort of more pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, I guess, type um, group who broadly, again, will either vote Conservative or won't vote. Uh, and then you've got the two groups who I think, you know, are going to decide the next election. Um, we've got one group, um, we call them established liberals. So uh, said so they are that Cameronite uh, Tory group, economically right-leaning, um, uh, socially more liberal, remain voters, take a very globalist um, view of the world. Um, climate change is becoming, uh, tackling climate change, I should say, has become an important part of their identity, um, you know, particularly located in the south um, of England, but not exclusively uh, more affluent. And, and that group, 
as I said, had basically been drifting away from the Conservative Party since uh, the Brexit referendum. At the last election, they were one of, I think, just two groups where the Conservative vote actually dipped, despite the Conservatives securing that landslide. Uh, and what we saw during Partygate and, but also a lot of the Johnson tenure, was that group moving further and further away to the point where Labour were about to cross over. Now, that group quite like Rishi Sunak. He appeals to a lot of their values um, and worldview. I actually think, based on what we've seen from Rishi Sunak, he's probably more socially conservative um, than perhaps that group realised, but that hasn't um, cut through, although it might, depending on where some of the Rwanda rhetoric goes. So what I would say is I think Sunak has stabilised um, the bleeding uh, with that group and got them about back where they were to in 2019, which which was still a low uh, for the Conservatives. So, so, so that's one group which Conservatives are probably a bit less worried about, but could still make gains. Um, or losses, depending on where things go. You've then got another group, and we call them loyal nationals. So they are a uh, big group um, of the public. They are socially conservative, economically more statist, um, tend to have quite um, high levels of threat perception, which is why it's interesting as a group. They um, both are among the most concerned about small boats, but are also actually concerned about tackling climate change because both of those phenomena in their minds play on that threat perception. And amongst that group, the Conservatives haven't made up any ground since uh, Rishi Sunak um, became Prime Minister. Uh, and I think that's for two reasons. One, you know, they are mightily cheesed off that they feel that those promises that were made to them in 2019 when they swung uh, quite dramatically from Labour to the Conservatives, many for the first time, haven't been met. But, but also, um, you know, just to be entirely frank, Sunak's style of politics and approach just doesn't appeal to that group as much. So you get, when you do focus groups of our loyal national segment, you will hear very often... Uh, you know, there's been a lot of cut through of this sense that he is out of touch. You know, you hear comments about, you know, recently about his swimming pool, um, you know, about when he was apparently unable to, or seemed to be unable to use contactless. That sort of thing is cut through with that group, but also a sense that unlike, say, Boris, he's less committed to that kind of redistribution from south to north, that he gets it um, a bit less. And we are seeing no recovery there. So, what that means for kind of macro politics is that, you know, it, it's very difficult, particularly given the Tories 2015 coalition. So that one that Cameron got that slim majority with has moved on. Um, it's very difficult without that more red Wally group for them to uh, not even just win a majority, but, you know, sort of come close or be the largest um, party. Um, and I think that's the key dynamic there, that they've lost enough support with that Liberal group, which means that seats like an Battersea, Canterbury, that Cameron won, they're not going back to the Conservatives at the next election. Um, but at the same time, these new voters, that Loyal National, Red War Group, whatever you are unconvinced, uh, certainly at the moment, by Sunak. Uh, and so without both of those ends, it, the electoral path for the Conservatives is very difficult. Can I just dig into the the sort of um, the social conservatives liberal side of those two groups you mentioned? Um, 
So when you say the nationals are more socially conservative than the liberal, you said they were loyal nationals and the, what was the name of the liberal uh, one? Established liberals. Established liberals. So when you say that one is more liberal than the other, uh, how where does that kind of sit on the spectrum? I assume that the, the national liberals are not what, we, what we'd associate with the kind of hyper-progressive culture warrior stuff. No, 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 it's much more, um, it's actually, it actually tends to be um, a sort of desire to, uh, you know, to not have culture wars um, uh, with that group. Um, But they are, when I say liberal, they do take a very kind of global outlook on things. You know, they think that, um, you know, they think that the EU, for instance, is a very good thing. And the truth is they're the group who are doing probably the most well out of the sort of, I guess what you might call liberal status quo. And they don't like things which seem to change that. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they are of all the groups, the least supportive um, on uh, something like leveling up, even if they accept the need for some redistribution, but say on something like very liberal, um on gay rights but most of the segments are but on something like the rwanda policy for instance amongst that group you get a huge chunk of don't knows um and then when you push them further and say you know would leaving the european court of human rights be a price worth paying to stop small boats they're absolutely no so it's that it's that sense of liberalism they you know they're fans of international institutions they don't want you know that they want to stop small boats they don't want the rhetoric um or the policy to go too far and so contrasting them to the loyal national group are they are they very much yes stop the small boats are they really up for the sort of right wing cultural stuff or is that still quite nuanced? yeah yes um I mean, I mean, you know, even, you know, during the pandemic, small boats would be in their top three most important issues. Um, You know, this and you can see the government's positioning and migration policy is aimed squarely um, at that group who, you know, see it as a major issue, want it stopped, frustrated it's failed so far. I guess my two caveats to that though and this is why i don't think you know the rwanda policy is the silver bullet electorally that some commentators seem to think is firstly even though it is important it is still dwarfed um on their list of issues by cost of living in the nhs um you know that that is what is determining their vote uh, and where they're going to go but secondly in every poll despite being huge supportive of the Rwanda policy and a desire to tighten up on um, migration policy. They don't think it'll work. Um, They say repeatedly, we support Rwanda, we don't think it's going to be a deterrence. And the real danger for the Conservatives, particularly with that group who are already, as I said, pretty disillusioned, is that they raise the salience but don't tackle the problem, which either leads to this group saying, you know what, I'm going back to Labour, um, I'm not going to vote, or, um, and when we've done research, we found that 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 group, if Reform UK, a sort of populist party of the right, got its act together, a big chunk of that group um, could end up going there because they're so sick of what they see as the two main parties failing to deliver on migration. So, yes, you know, small boats matters and they want it tackled, but the policy is not the electoral slam dunk that some think it is. Well, I just um, so I want to come in a moment to 
uh, some more about the issues that sort of drive politics. But I just wanted to come in on something ever so quick about specifically about immigration. Is there any sense that the Conservatives are paying a price for essentially broken promises on immigration? So if we go back in the midst of time to Cameron's leadership of the Conservatives, and there was the the <clears throat> promise, target, pledge, I'm not sure exactly what they define it, to, for migration to go from hundreds of thousands down to tens of thousands. Last year, 2022, net migration was over half a million a year so is there a is is there a sort of added threat to the support coming from that group to the conservatives that they go well you keep saying you're going to bring it down and yet it's going up and up and up so is that a sort of specific thing oh, uh, before uh, we go on to wider issues completely uh, and you know it's why you know if you look at um the opinion polls at the moment labor lead at the moment as the party most trusted um, on immigration. I mean, that's fairly unprecedented um, for the Labour Party to be ahead uh, on that metric. And, you know, in no small part is that a result of this sense of sort of constant broken promises. But, but, but it's also worth saying, look, you know, what's interesting is that while small boats are a big issue for this group, there has been a bit more attitudes to migration generally have actually softened, particularly post-Brexit, um, because there's this sense, rightly or wrongly again, uh, that we're in control of it. Um, so that's just, you know, another interesting dynamic playing out in this space. Well, that seems a good time to sort of broaden it out a little bit. Um, and I'm sort of Keen not to go on forever, though. I feel like we genuinely could. So what are the issues that are likely to drive politics ahead of the next election? And therefore, what advice would you give to the main political parties? You know, if you want to go Starmer, you know, Tory, Labour, if you want to go sort of wider than that, you can. And maybe as well, specifically anything on how they should handle cultural wars be interested for you to unpack any or all of the above yeah um so in terms of the big drivers so i, I do think as uh, as i said earlier there is that kind of macro frame amongst the public of exhaustion and the sense that britain is um uh, you know it's been a kind of non-stop nightmarish merry-go-round for six years and i really think there is a prize for the party that offers you know, a chance to get off the merry-go-round, which is why I think maybe, uh, and I say maybe because you know there's no doubt there's some grumpiness about uh, with among the electorate about Labour not being clear um, about their policy platform, but there may be some virtue in a sort of boring first um, approach in the run-up to the election because people don't want to be. Uh, animated uh, and excited again. You know, someone, someone in the focus group actually described, you know, the the sort of Boris years as like having a great time and then waking up with the stonking hangover. So as a macro frame, I would say that. And then, you know, undeniably, the, the two biggest issues across groups are um, the cost of living and uh, the NHS. And I think... The risk on the cost of living 
Um, I think particularly for Labour, actually, is that things seem so bad that they don't think any party uh, can do anything about it or tackle it or make it more tolerable. Um, you know, we, we we ask a regular question in our polling. We ask people, you know, when, when do you think the crisis will end? And about a third of the electorate now say we don't think the cost of living crisis is ever going to end. So there's got to be some way. Yeah, yes, you know, you're, they're an opposition Labour of describing how bad the problem is, but but they've got to be pointed to solutions and how Labour would deal with it um, as well. I think that that dose of optimism is important. Conversely, I think for the Conservatives, I think, you know, Rishi Sunak having made those economic pledges as, you know, the I think three of his five are on the economy, um, you know, the halving inflation, but how much that's in the government's gift, uh, <laughs> certainly uh, up for debate, but, you know, getting the economy growing, um, the debt falling, I mean, I think is slightly more meaningless uh, for the electorate, but there's got to be this sense I think the concern has got to be a sense not just that things are a little bit less rubbish, but that actually things are getting better. People need to feel there's a bit of wind uh, in their uh, sails uh, going into the election. So I think, you know, cost of living dominate. I then think, you know, the NHS is always an important electoral issue. I think what's different this time is this sense of, you get from people, whereas pre previous elections, it's probably how are you going to protect and invest in the NHS? In the run-up to 2024, what we're getting a lot of us, God, this system just seems so broken. Um, you know, we get in every focus group, when we ask about it, the heartbreaking stories of, you know, people's relatives, the amount of time they're spending in A&E, unable to get a GP's appointment. You know, we had one man who'd had to, in the end, get himself a taxi to hospital when he was having a heart attack he just couldn't wait. Uh, for the ambulance so it, it's more than just kind of protect and invest this sense of what are you going to do to improve uh, and make this service better and you know that is not to diminish um, the NHS workforce there is still deep love uh, for the NHS work workforce are the most popular of all the professions but this sense of the system they're operating in uh, just isn't working and, and I think again Labour I think probably have more space to set out um, a plan here than the Tories because they're naturally more trusted on the NHS. So I think, you know, some of the stuff we've heard from West Streeting around looking at that role of the GP, I actually think will appeal to a lot of people because, again, you know, we hear times again, well, why do I have to ring up at eight o'clock uh, in the morning and do this kind of roulette as to whether I get through? Why is everyone's system different? So I think there's there's a space for boldness for Labour there. The Tories, it's much trickier because, you know, there is always the charge of, you know, do they believe in the NHS? Um, and, you know, I, I think it's quite unfortunate for the Tories. The number of times we hear as well is, Where's that 350 million um, uh, that we were promised for the NHS during the Brexit referendum? Now, of course, since Brexit, a lot more, you know, however truthful that or not that claim was, a lot more than 350 million has gone into the NHS, but people aren't seeing it. So um, I think it's harder for the Tories, but I think they've got to keep burnishing kind of their investment credentials. Um, if the nurses accept the pay offer, I think that will go a long way um towards at least 
you know, providing some reassurance to the public because there was no doubt in that battle between the nurses and the government um, that the nurses absolutely came out on top. And then there's a third group of issues, which I broadly call like sort of broken Britain issues. And, you know, I don't, I don't like saying broken Britain, but it, it's the word, you know, the, again, the end of every focus group, we ask people to sum up Britain in 2023 in a word and broken or shambles are by far the most common at the moment. It's just showing how you're going to make progress on those things that are making people's life just that bit worse. So um, I know there was some, you know, uh, sneeriness from some commentators. I actually think the crime focus from both main parties in the past month has been really important because antisocial behaviour, this sense that, you know, the only time you would ever bother calling the police now is to get a crime reference number because they're certainly not going to come out and see you if you get burgled or have something stolen. So I think, what, what are you going to do on this you know, sometimes called low-level crime, which I think is a terrible phrase because people who experience it don't see it as low-level. What are you going to do to tackle uh, these crimes? Uh, I think both parties have set out quite credible uh, plans uh, on it as well. And, all, you know, things like getting the trains working, getting the buses working, just, just this sense that, you know, we've never really properly come recovered from the pandemic. Um, I think that's going to be really important um, as well. Uh, and culture wars, sorry, you asked me about. Um, how would I approach these issues? Well, I think to go back to what we said, I, you know, that there's one strategy, which is the kind of wedge strategy, which is to use um, culture wars to divide, um, create divides or to build uh, particular um, support, I, you know, I think, you know, that there's certainly obviously examples of that being electorally successful. I think the danger there is that, A, today's culture war winners are tomorrow's culture war losers. You saw that with something like Section 28 and the damage that did to the Conservatives brand uh, long term. But, but I think secondly as well, prosecuting culture wars, particularly when the economy uh, is in the state of when you have, you know, again, we hear regularly from families struggling to feed, um, you know, feed, feed their children, having to work extra jobs, you know, having to give up the car, um, having to get the bus to work, you know, these huge, you know, the economy is feels so bad to so many people and they're struggling across living this focus on culture wars can start to look a bit odd um and we know that certainly you know the the trans issue that, that kind of blew up in scott morrison's face with lots of people thinking what well, you know um uh well, why are you talking about this when there are so many other challenges so i think they're the risks to that wedge strategy as i said there's there's the avoid strategy which i think um you know, has its own risk. You know, people don't like politicians being evasive. I think it seeds lots of ground uh, to those on the extreme. And then I think there's a, you know, uh, and activists often don't like this, but there's a sort of balancer um, approach, um, which is trying to channel where the British public are. And I think, you know, Labour have tried to do that a bit on migration, saying, yeah, you know, we agree with stopping small boats, but, you know, number one, we should be targeting um, the smugglers and the gangs bringing uh, people in rather than throwing more money um, at a scheme which we don't think will work. So I think there are ways that you can sort of navigate and sort of tap into 
um, public opinion on that. And I think, you know, the Tories get that as well. It's it's kind of notable um, that, you know, at the same time, um, you, know, you know, despite being seen to um, bring forward uh, lots of things which you, you, which you might say were opposed to trans rights or certainly sided, um, you know, with the more gender critical uh, side of the argument. You know, at the same time, they brought in, you know, that they brought forward this commitment to ban conversion therapy. So, you know, there's recognition in the Tory party as well that you can go uh, too far with this stuff and you've got to inject a bit of balance because the moment the public think you're not being fair minded, that is when you lose them. I just wanted to finish this section by pressing you for some advice that you would give the main parties, main leaders. And um, I know that we try to avoid sort of sound bites on uh, on this podcast, but as close to a sound bite as we could go, what are the sorts of advice that you would give to the main parties or main leaders? I think for so for. For Keir Starmer, I think the advice that I would give is show people both that it can and how it will get better under a Labour government. Um, it's that, you know, show them, it's, it's not the, you don't have to show them the promised land, but you've just got to show them that a Labour government will get us out of uh, this mess. I think for the Conservatives, I think Sunak has to bet the house now on this competence first approach and hope um that the electorate remember the sunak of furlough um and that still comes up uh in focus groups you know rather than what they see as the chaos uh of the past year uh, and avoid being tempted down a sort of core vote ultra culture war pathway so we could talk about these things all day, um, but before we let you go, we want to ask you about uh, education policies. We know in in past life you've had a bit of background in that area. So um, two things have made the news recently that I've seen um, in the education space, and obviously the, the services across the border under under pressure. So there's that context too. So the two things that I've observed would be the um, uh, the coverage of Ofsted inspections and the very sad death of the teacher, Ruth Perry. And then, of course, the strikes, which you mentioned in an NHS context. So I'd be very interested to get your take on those issues and how I suppose, how the government or maybe a future Labour government might um, handle that stuff well. Mm. Um, good questions. And, and you'll notice that, you know, it's, it's always always slightly disappoints me that uh, when I talk about the top issues that are going to shape the election, uh, education is never one of them uh unfortunately um it is uh it's rarely uh an election uh decider uh, but that doesn't mean as you said there aren't important issues um happening uh in education um on Ofsted um I spent uh, a couple of years as um Ofsted's director of uh strategy and helped to shape the new uh framework um that uh, is used against which schools uh, are judged and you know what, what i'd say on offset is well first of all you know i mean ruth perry's death is you know, devastating tragedy and i can't imagine what her uh, family and you know friends but also the school community are uh, are feeling about that and obviously you know, that wasn't uh, wasn't on the inspection 
um, that happened. But I guess what I would say about Ofsted as a whole is that I think in this debate, it, it's it's slightly been misrepresented. You know, you get you sometimes get this view of Ofsted being this big, great big rod to beat schools uh, with. But, you know, it neglects the fact that, you know, 88% of schools are good or outstanding. And that of the schools that Ofsted goes into and gives a requires improvement to, so that's the grade below good, 70% of them improve on their next uh, inspection. And so I actually think the inspectorate has a really important role, both in identifying um, where improvement needs to happen, but also, you know, providing this it's almost like a translation uh service or kind of lifting the veil for parents as well you know um i don't know um you know how much uh, you know of schools world you, you've been in but it's so arcane and unless you've got some kind of independent way of assessing you know what's going on in a school is the quality of education good enough uh, actually you leave parents in the dark and you know sometimes you get in fact no more than sometimes you get a lot of people say, but we've got so much data um about schools now um do we really need an inspectorate going in uh, and the truth is you do because you know w- one of the things i i talked about that new inspection framework that we brought in uh to ofsted one of the things that framework tried to do was Actually, it was a recognition we need to look much more about how schools are achieving the results or data they are. You know, we had just give you one example. We had there were a whole series of schools getting higher results because they were entering kids who were perfectly good at um, English, um, perfectly good English skills into English as a second language qualification. Um, But purely because they knew they would ace that and it would boost the results. So you need those checks. You also need to see, you know, what the behaviour leadership school is now i actually think part of the problem or the issue with ofsted is less ofsted going in and doing its inspection it's then what happens after a school receives the grade because ofsted with schools is the inspector it doesn't do the regulatory work and i think it's we've made the stakes that are attached to requires improvement and inadequate judgments too high and so you know for instance actually there's a big role for governors when a school gets a poor judgment at looking at okay we've had this picture what was the specific, what was the leadership and management judgment what did they say about school leaders even even if other areas uh need work actually you know do they say the leadership are doing a good job in trying to okay in that case we back them rather than this kind of football manager syndrome with head teachers, if you've got a bad Ofsted, you're out. I think similarly, you know, the Department for Education should be looking at, okay, Ofsted's identified a school as needing improvement. How are we going to help that school improve? I mean, you know, there are some that sort of say Ofsted should be playing that role. I'm I'm a little nervous about that because I think if you're both judging and doing the improvement work, you're essentially marking your own homework. But I do think, you know, and I hope Bridget Phillipson thinks about this, uh, if she becomes education director, she can think about being a bit smarter about once a judgment happens, what do we uh, what do we do? On um, teachers' um, strikes, um, you know, it's, it's really uh, difficult because, you know, we know there are issues, you know, not just with teachers' pay, but with uh, teachers' workload. We clearly have a recruitment and retention um, problem 
in schools. That said, I think rejecting the latest offer, uh, which included a, a, a one-off payment uh, as well as a rise, and striking in the run-up to exam season, given how much you know education we know that this cohort of children have already lost due to the pandemic strikes me as you know unwise and unfair you know my hope you know I don't want to sound too this makes me sound like a politician but I genuinely think I really do hope the union leaders and the government get their heads together and come up with a solution because I really think the last thing that kids need is uh, losing more time out of education Final, final, very quick thing. Um, those two things have made the, the headlines recently. Are they the most important things for uh, improving outcomes for pupils? Because I often find with these sort of policy coverage, it's the, it's the bigger story that gets talked about but not necessarily the most impactful thing. So we'll, what would be the, the things that would really improve education? So it's a really good question. I mean, I actually think, uh, and you know, again, I was uh, I was a Department for Education special advisor, so I am uh, undoubtedly biased on that. I actually think we are starting to see the fruits of some of the education reforms that not just Michael Gove and Nikki Morgan started, but actually under. Uh, Blair and Adonis really come to fruit. So, you know, London now, you know, gets overlooked. London is an educational powerhouse. Um, it could genuinely, you know, in the, if it were a separate country in PISA league tables, which are, you know, the sort of international education rankings, you know, it would be right up there on the top. And so one of the things which I'm really interested in, and I think is the big challenge for education is, We've kind of found how to make it work in London and in some of the other big cities and in some pockets with free schools. How do you spread that? Because that's the bit that we've become less good. Become we've never been good at. Um, you know, we've got these. We've taken an, an area. You think about London schools. What. 20, 25 years ago, you know, total opposite. It's been transformed. So it's how do you take that pocket of excellence uh, and spread it. Uh, elsewhere so that's one and I think the second thing is and again I don't think you'll get um, many um, sort of headlines about this but you know one of the things that um, Nick Gibb who is the schools minister and kind of on and off has almost been schools minister now for about 13 years uh, which uh, as you all know in sort of ministerial turnover terms is pretty extraordinary um, he introduced um, something in primary schools called the phonics check uh, um uh, which I don't know if you've got uh, kids you, you've been through and your know, kids learning those kind of the gobbledygook um, words, uh, but it's actually a proven, much more effective way uh, to develop reading. What's really interesting, again, is you're starting to see the effects of that trickle through in these international tests with our reading scores shooting up. I think what we haven't done is found what, what the kind of phonics for maths is. And so I think that would be, you know, if we could do that with early maths, um, I think it would, um, you know, I think it would be one of the best things we could do for the education system. Look, Thank you so much. I'm conscious that you probably have a life and a family <laughs> to get back to. And I genuinely feel like if we don't stop here, yeah, we no, honestly no. will go on all night. No, only that... Because it's been fascinating. I've had such a good time. I've really enjoyed it. That's been great. No, no, thank you so much for having me. It has been our absolute pleasure. So, Luke, on behalf of both of us and hopefully all of our listeners, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Steve, as ever, thank you very much. Thanks, Martin, and thanks again, Luke. 
And thank you all for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast and goodbye.